Let's jump in to church number three in the seven church series we are doing of the churches listed in Revelation, Revelation chapter two. Um, just as a, a little recap, well, today we will be doing Pergamum, but as a little bit of a recap from some of the teachings the last two Sundays, we started with Ephesus and Joey reminded us um, through the experience of that church that it is important to keep the first thing first, that Jesus is our first love. That's how he's the one who drew us in. He's the one that continues to build a relationship with us. And we have to keep him the center, the priority of everything else, because anything else that flows out of that is just busy work. It becomes uh, striving, becomes just a sense of obligation. And we really uh, lose the joy of serving when Jesus isn't in the center of it, when we're not uh, moving out of an overflow of his love um, manifesting through us to others. So the challenge there was get back to your first love. And that was for the whole church of Ephesus. The next um, one Mark Miller did last week, the church in Smyrna. And Smyrna was a church that needed um, encouragement because it sounds like they're going to be in persecution. It sounds like they are really on the brink of some serious trials and tribulations. And we haven't experienced a lot of physical persecution here in this country, but we were made aware that there is uh, that sort of persecution happening worldwide right now. And we need to be sensitive to the spirit, how to pray for those people, how to stand. We are one body, even our brothers and sisters across the world. And um, we just need to be prayerfully supporting them, that they would remain strong. And for ourselves, too, be preparing our hearts now for the days that we need to stand when everyone else seems to be divided in their faith, in their direction, in their strength. Um, we need to be able to, to stand the test. And on the other side of that is a, an amazing reward. And um, that was, again, for the whole church. Today, I think a little bit of a different focus is coming to the Church of Pergamum. The Church of Pergamum, it says, some of you are doing a good job with this. And I have a few things against some others of you. So um, maybe you'll find yourself in one of two categories today um, as we explore what the Church of Pergamum was was encountering and um, maybe relate it to what are we hearing from the Lord in our personal situations today. So um, I realized we haven't seen a map, and I'm a big map person. So um, it's kind of hard to see exactly the names up there. But um, the area that we're talking about is in modern-day Turkey. It was formerly called Asia Minor. That's the area that we would have um, found in any of our research that we found um, about these these, um, early churches. So uh, Ephesus is the port city on the farthest west coast. We're kind of going up into a... A point here. The uppermost point is Pergamum. So the letters, um, Joey told us, were called kites, and they traveled. Everybody in every church got the same, got all, all of everyone's letters. So we know um, the messages that were delivered to the churches. So Ephesus um, is the bottom, and right north of that is Smyrna that we heard about last week. The uppermost northern point is Pergamum, where we're going to be visiting. Um, the church today. As you can see, they're not a port city, so they weren't really big on import-export. Their wealth, in that sense, wasn't quite as uh, lucrative because they weren't um, able to, you know, do a lot of uh, sea trade. However, they found their their wealth in a couple other areas. One was in politics. Um, they were the capital city of Asia Minor at the time, and they were very Um, very active in making laws and executing them, making sure that everybody in the land heard what the laws were and they would send envoys of Romans out to enforce these new laws and any changes in government policy um, across the the region of Asia Minor. Uh, They were also known for scholarship. Um, They, the, the Egyptians, for a long time had kind of the coin on papyrus as the sole paper that we could write on where we have our earliest recorded um, words and writings that weren't, you know, hieroglyphics or something carved on stone. Our first portable paper type product was papyrus and Egypt pretty much had the coin on that. And then they decided they were going to stop supplying it to certain areas. And um, 
Pergamum stepped up and figured out how to make parchment out of leather and hides, from, specifically from deer and pigs initially. And they figured out how to tan that, and they made volumes of books. Then they, they were ones that were able to compile books. Um, so they were known for their, their scholarship. Um, they had one of, one of the biggest, libra- two biggest libraries in um, the ancient world. Um, in fact, their library was so impressive to Cleopatra that she asked Mark Antony for permission to move, relocate it to Alexandria when she lived there because she wanted impressive things around her. So a 200,000-volume library of bound parchment books were relocated to Alexandria from Pergamum. Um, they also um, were the center of religious worship. They, this is where they really made their money. Um, you could pay for a number of spiritual services. This was a very spiritually charged area and not with um, the Holy Spirit. It, they had many, many gods. One main one, the, their big moneymaker, was, and it doesn't look like, to me like it's pronounced like this, but everybody that I listened to pronouncing this and read pronunciation says, Escopolis. So I'm going to call him Escopolis, but it looks like there, there's a few more letters in there. Anyway, we'll call this Escopolis, the god of healing. And Escopolis um, had a big temple um, constructed with a bunch of little um, compartments in it, kind of like a medical ward. And what people would do is go and pay a handsome sum to a priest who would allow them entrance, entrance into this healing temple. And they would, um, there, there's one region that was kind of like baths if they felt like they wanted to soak in the baths. It was basically a spa day. They'd really like lure you in. They'd give you um, a, a special drink that um, kind of served as a relaxer and a, a sedative so that you're feeling pretty good as you're walking around there. And then it would sometimes induce a dream state so and some, halluc- uh, some hallucinations so that when you went into your compartment to spend the night and non-poisonous snakes crawled all around you, um, it was believed that the snakes, as they touched you, actually brought the healing power of Ascopolis. And... Um, people would have these crazy dreams and then they'd come out and tell the priest their crazy dream and the priest would interpret the dream and always predict some kind of healing or good fortune or something to go with it because, you know, a good dream paid better than a bad dream. Um, It was kind of a double standard in this temple. They would have signs right on the outside that said, no one is allowed to die here. So terminally ill, head home. They didn't want any, any bad reputation to come out of there. You weren't, uh, uh, if, if, if things spread, if word spread that somebody had died in a ward, that um, would have wrecked the reputation and their, their money scheme would have gone because the whole thing was we can basically guarantee healing. So the, vi- the, the non-poisonous snakes would come with you and because there were a myriad of gods that they worshiped, um, the priest could basically just pick a god, and if they'd never heard of the description of this one, and what it really was is a demon would come and visit um, a, a wounded or hurting a sick person, and, um, and the priests, who did have spiritual sensitivity, sometimes talking to the demons and getting their power from God's adversary, would be able to Um, explain to them what this God is saying and what this means, and they would name them. And um, it helped them to have a myriad of gods because it was, um, you you could never go wrong. Oh, I've never heard of him before. Oh, you have a special God. And it it would help them to describe things in a way that really made people buy into this this whole scam. Um, Kind of like today, I don't know, we think that more choices are better. And that's kind of an underlying theme in some of the other problems that the Church of Pergamum is going to encounter here in a little bit. Um, so another um, thing that, they, that was a big moneymaker was this was the primary um, altar to Zeus. Um, Pergamum was a, on a hill a thousand feet high um, from, from sea level. It was on a high point. And 800,000 feet, or 800 feet up that hill 
on the, on the side was erected this enormous, and you see a picture of it, um, this enormous altar to Zeus. It was um, 90 square feet um, on the base, 20 feet high, and smoke constantly rose up from endless sacrifices to Zeus. So you would have to purchase your sacrifice, you'd have to pay for, um, for the tools to, to make the sacrifice. Um, it was gruesome sacrifice, it wasn't like a nice clean cut necessarily. Um, sometimes they would strangle the animals. It was gruesome sacrifice to Zeus and there was always a cloud of smoke um, coming up above the city of Pergamum. And you know, even when people burn wood in your town, it's, you can smell it. So the smell of the stench of this, this idolatry was permeating um, the streets of Pergamum all the time because it was constantly growing. Um, Satan's throne is what this uh, is a name that this, uh, uh, this altar received. And the word throne um, we'll find in the passage that we're going to read um, is a word that means um, master's seat. Um, and you would find a master's seat in ancient um, culture um, in a home. It would kind of be like that really cuddly, lazy boy that you sit on, that you know this is where I'm going to be at the end of the day. If you are the master of your home, you have your seat, right? And no cat is going to take it from you, no you know, dog, no child, whatever. You are going to be in your master's seat. It's the idea of your home. It's the kind of seat that comes. So Satan felt right at home there. He was comfortable. He wasn't getting a lot of opposition from the people of, uh, from, yeah, from the, the culture of the people in Pergamum. Um, so uh, additional gods, um, just, you can um, just hear some of them. Apollo, Athena, Aphrodite, Bacchus, the god of wine, Dionysius, who, who was probably the most perverse and obscene of all um, the forms of worship that they did to Dionysus. Um, they also were big on emperor worship, like Mark mentioned last week. The emperor at the time was Domitian, and he would require people to annually announce, um, you are my Lord and my God, and throw um, a, some sand or something into a vat to acknowledge that, yes, um, I worship the emperor too. Um, one author wrote about the city of Pergamum that here the highest capacity of mankind, the capacity was to worship, was degraded into corruption. And it, when you think about that, it is amazing that we as human beings have the capacity to worship, to connect with and fellowship with and honor the most powerful being in the universe, the spirit of God, that there's a whole nother world that we can be sensitive to that probably, you know, chickens and trees and everything else that lives is not sensitive to. It's a special gift between humanity and, the, and our creator that we have the ability to worship. And that's a real honor that has been misused for years in the, in the, the city of Pergamum. So let's get to the scripture. Um, Revelation 2, 12 to 17. I'm going to read the whole thing first, um, and I don't have a slide for this, and then I'm going to break it down. Revelation 2, 12 to 17. The, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Oh, Jesus, uh, there's a lot 
here, and I'm already feeling a little bit rushed um, to say everything that um, I felt earlier on my heart was so important. So I pray that you just sift that. Um, sift it down, Lord. I just take a moment, like Randy said this morning, just help me to be still, help my mind to stop erasing, and help me to speak the clear, pure message of your word that this congregation needs to hear today. Amen. All right, breaking it down, in verse 12, it says the angel of the church in Pergamum, and we know that is the person who's going to be delivering the message, needs to, um, that it's addressed to the, the, the preacher, probably the, the, the bishop, or whoever is the, the messenger in that church. These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. So every one of these churches starts with a characteristic of Jesus. And when we hear sharp, double-edged sword, what comes to mind, those of you who know how to pull scripture from a lot of different areas. And when we hear a sharp double-edged sword, and we're spiritually speaking, what comes to mind? Word of God. Yeah. Because there are several passages in the Bible, and I'll just talk about two of the more, po- the more popular ones, um, Ephesians 6, 17, and Hebrews 4, 12. Um, literally, it would, a, a double-edged sword would have been like the one, a Thracian-style sword, most likely, uh, would have been broad, long, strong, and sharp. So we would have the literal representation of an offensive weapon used for destruction in a, in a situation of war and wrath, a powerful, devastating kind of a weapon, okay? And in Ephesians six seventeen, it says, um, uh, with, with the full armor of God, it says, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's the only offensive weapon that we're offered in Ephesians 6 with the armor of God. Everything else is for defense because Lord knows we're going to be attacked as we go into battle against the enemy. He doesn't provide anything for the back of us. There's no armor provision for behind because we are not people who retreat. When it comes to standing for the word of God, we must always... Be facing forward, seeing what's next with the word of God as our weapon. Standing firm, knowing that that is how we are going to do battle. Our offensive weapon is the word of God. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to divide soul from spirit and all the way down to joint from marrow. It is specific. It is living. It is active. It is penetrating. It is precise. And it is judgment. It brings the wrath of God sometimes. Now, we say we're in the New Testament. We're in the post-Jesus era. We've got grace. God doesn't work like that anymore. Oh, really? The church in Pergamum had Jesus. They were a church that had received the gospel. They had accepted Jesus as their Lord, and they had had renounced some of these other pagan religions in favor of following him, the one true God. And they were being told by God himself, the word, another word made flesh. We know that once we connect to the sword of spirit is the word of God. And then in Luke, when we see that, uh, that man does not live on bread alone, but on the word of God, and then Jesus' words feed us. And then in John, when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus is the word of God. So these words are Jesus to their heart. And we need to to it up and take some notice of that because this is him saying, I will bring judgment. You can't just behave willy-nilly. That's the word that Andrew and I like to use in our house. You can't just behave willy-nilly and think there will be no consequence. God loves his church too much and he loves the people of the world who have never heard of him too much to let them see a church that just waffles around in sin without addressing it. We need to take account of this word. It's an important word. It's a symbol, ultimately. This, 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 uh, the characteristic of Jesus that we're going to see here is a symbol of impending divine judgment. 
It's the Word of God, the Bible, isn't the only book that carries um, power. In fact, I used to work in urban missions down the street from a New Age store. Um, basically pagans for the modern day, paganism for the modern day. And I found a really interesting book that has some spells that could be um, used for, oh, making people fall in love or for a little more devious um, purposes like um, making people have heart attacks. There's all kinds of things in this book. And I thought I'd just read a couple of them to you um, to see what happens. So <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But some of you laugh <laughs> because here we are talking about the power of the Word of God, and I'm going to bring in some kind of pagan heresy and deception, and it has power. It really does. That's why people tap into it. There's power. But we, why? Why are we concentrating? Why are, do, does it strike fear into our hearts? Why do we have some kind of a hesitation, a nervous feeling when I say I'm going to read a spell, an evil pagan spell? And still, some of us are sitting here going, yeah, I know the word of God. Oh, okay, judgment. Okay, I'll be all right. You might not be all right. Jesus' words might be coming to penetrate, to be specific, to bring some judgment to a particular area. And the beauty of it, it's precise. So you don't have to walk, walk into this feeling like you are going to be some sort of a, you know, walking, wounded, all beat up. He'll tell you and give you the option to partner with him in overcoming. So we've got good news coming through a powerful source today, and I am really pumped to be able to be your messenger. So let's look at verse 13. This is Jesus' word to them. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Remember, making himself at home. By the way, I stole that example from a friend of Joey's. Um, I think his name was Jim Baker. <laughs> That will mean something different to those of us in a different generation. Jim Baker was not a name that we associate with this kind of thing. But he, um, he used that as an example, so I want to give credit to him for having a really creative um, object lesson there. Uh, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So just... Um, I, a few things from that. I know where you live. For us today, that means God knows. He's present. He knows where you live, where you work, where you shop. Um, he's fully aware of your circumstances, the challenges you face. When Satan comes against you and Satan's trying to, you know, find a way to make his home in your heart oh, and, and trying to divide your loyalties to, to, your, to your one true God, um, he understands. He's there. He knows. He understands that our adversary is present and evil and pervasive and persistent. He knows. He understands that the struggle is real, but he stays with us through it. So we are not alone in the struggle. We have each other, but more importantly, we have him and we have his spirit within us, giving us the strength that we need. He said that... Um, if you remain true to my name. So basically, it's coming down to being mindful. God is mindful of us. Can we be mindful of him? Are we going, no matter what we face, are we going to remain true? Are we going to say, no, I, I, I set my thoughts on Christ, and this sounds like falsity to me. I'm going to stick with what I know to be true. I'm going to call to mind. I'm going to be mindful um, you did not renounce. I'm not just going to say what's in the moment when my physical body is aiming me to do because I'm uncomfortable. I'm not going to renounce the name. I'm not going to let those words come out of my mouth that would hinder my confidence, my, my walk, um, my witness for the name of Jesus. So you did not renounce. And then he says, um, not even in the days of Antipas. Now, Antipas was a physician. And he was a guy who was the bishop of the church of Pergamum. And he waged war against the Escapolis. And this was really cool. Um, the pagan priests in the temple, it's recorded in a number of different sources, not just in the Bible, um, but a number of commentaries and even some Greek literature um, tells about his martyrdom. He preached the gospel in such a way 
outside um, the temple and to the people who came into their church that demons were fleeing. He was speaking the word of God with so much power and authority and taking up that sword of the spirit and doing some serious damage. And the priests were getting tracked it down to him because the demons were coming to them and complaining to them, you've got to do something about this guy. He just cast me out of that person. And I tried to go into somebody else and he cast me out again. And I can't, I can't get any leverage with this guy. He's too powerful. He's too confident in, in the one true God. And that was the other thing. He came preaching one true God. Well, one true God and demons fleeing at the name of this one true God is not good for business. So the pagan priests got together, went to the governor of, of, of the Roman governor that was stationed near Pergamum at the time and said, could you please do something about this guy? He is bad for business. So they'd make this really big public trial. They think, yeah, we're powerful. We're going to wear him down. Antipas, old man at the time, stands there and, and takes, takes a verbal beating, takes um, lies and accusation, takes um, imprisonment, takes um, being forcibly arrested and dragged um, into court and paraded before people. He takes it and finally they say, final chance, one last test. Will you declare your allegiance to the emperor? Because then he got, the Roman emperor, uh, governor that got involved took it, started taking it personally. He was like, well, to say that you have one true God means the emperor is not your Lord and your God. So that's like treason against Rome. If you don't acknowledge the leader of Rome as your God, then it's like you don't acknowledge your Roman citizenship at all, the Roman Empire. It's like treason, and that is a, an offense punishable by death. They said, please, just do this. Save your life. Renounce. Announce, uh, renounce Jesus. Say that you were wrong and make the statement to the emperor. Antipas wouldn't do it. He said, no. I have one true God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior. I stand with him. So they tie him up, take him up to the altar of Zeus, the most public high point that they could find. Huge crowd of people coming to see if he would still hold on to the last. Put him into a big bronze bowl, and um, the, a hollow bowl. Rope him up with his head towards the, the head part of the of the bull because it had this little it's kind of like a megaphone that old-fashioned sort of a megaphone it was a hollow pipe with a some kind of a magnifying effort so that when people were put inside this bowl and were moaning it it the impression was that the bull was coming to life and and its moans and groans were the power of of the spirit world um, um, agreeing with whatever action was being taken they put Antipas in. And you know what that bull moaned that day? Lord, please strengthen the people of my church. Guide them. Help them to stand strong. Keep them pure. Keep them from the evil that has befallen me. His, his voice rang out, is recorded in a number of sources as declaring prayers for his people, his praise, even as they stoked the fire got it burning hotter behind him, and eventually roasted him alive in that bowl. That is the kind of faith that God said they were going, even in the days of Antipas, there were some people in this church of Pergamum, so there were people there who, they'd been through it. You know, there's a point, there comes a point in your walk with Jesus where you're like, you know what, there's no turning back. I've, I've been through enough. I've seen enough of what he can do. I would be ridiculous to even think about turning back. And there were some people in the church that were on that side. And God called, these are the words of Jesus. He said, my faithful witness. He called Antipas a, new, a name. He wasn't at Antipas anymore. You say, oh, um, uh, you remember that Antipas guy? Oh, yeah, my faithful witness. To be able to be called by God and recognized as his faithful witness. Wow, that he gives him that name. He calls him, tell him that Antipas is my faithful witness, that guy. And that is a, that is a, a treasure to be able to, call, be, to be recognized by God in that way. It says he was put to death in your city where Satan lives, and we, um, we have the chance to stand on that side, to be people 
who stand like Antipas stood and be declared a, a name worthy of great honor, a faithful witness by Jesus Christ himself. On the other side, um, and by the way, that was in AD 92 that Antipas um, was, was killed. In verse 14, verses 14 and 15, we see that, wow, that's really small back there. Sorry. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so on one side you have these group of people who stood, who did not renounce, who held to their faith, even in the days of Antipas, um, to be faithful witnesses with him. On the other side, we have the few a few things against you. There are some, some among you, and this is like the whole church, because God is working on purifying his whole bride, and we're all at different stages in, in our relationship with him. So let's see where these, some, of, some of these other people were at. You hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols. Okay, we have to get into Balaam and Balak a little bit before um, we can really understand what God's problem was with these with these issues that um, the church at Pergamum was, was going into. So for these um, stories, we look back to Numbers. In the Old Testament, Numbers 22 to 25, this, those three chapters tell the story of Balaam and his encounters with the king of, uh, with the king of Midian, who, or sorry, the king of Moab, who was uh, Balak. And um, then in chapter 31, of Numbers, we then find out his, the conclusion of, Bala, of Balaam's story, what happened to him. So basically, I'm going to give you this great overview. If any of you did the Bible Challenge last year and you read about Balaam, um, his name might ring a bell because he's the guy who had a donkey speak to him. Uh, he was on his way to do some, some stuff that God wasn't pleased with, and the donkey saw an angel of the Lord standing with a sword in front of him, and he and the, the donkey tried to pull him off the road two or three times, and Balaam beat him, beat her, actually beat the donkey. And the donkey looked and said, why are you beating me? Don't you, open your eyes, don't you see? I'm saving your life here, buddy. And Balaam, oh, oh, yeah, maybe I should pay attention to, to my donkey, who is smarter than I am when it comes to deserting the way of the Lord. So we end up with... Um, a little bit of a backstory to that. So the, the Israelites, this is in their period of time, 40 years in the desert, they're, they're blazing their trail to the promised land. The promised land um, was on the other side of a lot of foreign pagan cultures. And God, in his process of defining a people for himself, giving them a territory, trying to set up an, a region where, it, where he would be the one true God and would be glorified and worthy and worshiped as such, he, um, he waged war on a lot of pagan cultures on his way. And the word was starting to spread about this horde of people, the Israelites, that were moving towards, um, moving towards you know, new, new regions and, and seemed to be conquering um, different lands. So there were people, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the um, kings of smaller countries, Bashan would be one. They had already fallen. And the Midianites and the Moabites were next. The Israelites had made camp along their border. And there was a local, he was, they called him a prophet, but really he was a fortune teller. Um, he was a guy who was a spiritualist named Balaam. And Balak knew that he had a reputation for cursing people. And for the right price, he would give you just the right worded curse that would, um, that would wreak havoc on whoever received the curse. So Balak talks to the king of Balak, king of Balak, king of Moab, talks to his neighboring king, the king of Midian, and he says, "Hey, will you join me in paying this guy Balaam to curse the Israelites for us before they have a chance to let's weaken them by a curse before they have a chance to take our territories and, and do to us what they've done to the, all the surrounding lands?" Well. 
Balak sends an envoy to Balaam, and Balaam says, uh, well, I have, to, I have to check and see what, what this God says, what this Lord God says. So he went, and because he had some kind of sensitivity to the Spirit, God did meet with him and said, don't go with them. So Balaam went back, and he said, I'm sorry, I can't go with you. That God says, I, I, can't, I can't curse these people. So the envoy goes back, and then Balak says, let's give him more money. Let's, even more. So he sends him back, um, another envoy back with even more money. And, Balak again, and Balaam again says, um, I'll, I'll go ask God. And so God says, okay, um, I can see that you really want to go. So I'll let you go, but you can only say what I tell you to say. And Balaam, okay. Now we have to read between the lines here a little bit. The Balaam's motive of his heart was a little bit misplaced. Like he didn't, he didn't care about cursing the Israelites or helping the, the, the Moabites or Midianites. He wanted some cash. And he knew that the better job he did cursing or whatever, the, the higher the, the pot uh, got. So he wanted to go um, and curse them. So that's when he takes off on his donkey, has a situation with donkey, eventually arrives and Balak takes him to a high place and says, okay, from here you can't see all the people of Israel, but this is a good place. You can see a lot of them and at least get your curse working on this group right here. So they set up seven altars. They, they sacrifice seven, um, they, uh, a, a cow and a sheep on every altar and, um, and then give Balaam the organs um, to go and do his sorcery, his divination, so that he can find, uh, he can find the, the, the curse, the God, whatever curse he can put on these people. And he come, they come over and um, uh, he comes back and he stands and he's ready to pronounce his curse and he opens his mouth and he says something like, Israel is blessed. They are wonderful people, mighty and worthy of great honor. Balak is hot. That does not sound much like a curse. Sounds more like a blessing. And Balaam, hey, hey, uh, I told you I could only say what the Lord God said I could say, so uh, let's try again. Balak takes him to another high point. Does the same thing. Seven altars, two animals strangled and laid on each and blood everywhere, and he takes their organs, goes off for a while to divine, comes back, I've got the message. Israel will be the hand of destruction to anybody who opposes the one true God. They are wonderful. They are amazing. Excuse me? He's even shocking himself. He honestly came, and you have to read a couple um, um, supplemental um, accounts to get this because the word, uh, the Bible, our account is, is very skeletal. It, it just gives you kind of like the highlights. But so this happens, and then it happens a third time, and again, blessing, blessing, blessing. So Balaam, in one last final attempt to uh, get his pay and appease Balak, he says, well, I'm going to bless them some more. And he's standing there, and he's just like, "Ah." the words coming out of his mouth are awesome for the people of Israel. Balak's like, just get out of here. Just go. You're clearly not, not cutting it. So he leaves, but then he goes to the king of Midian, and he says, hey, talk to Balak for me. Would you tell Balak that um, I do happen to know that the Israelites, the, the, the gods around me, have told me their weakness, and uh, they do have a weakness for women, and they have a lust for power. So if you could tell your Midianite ladies to... Uh, pretty themselves up and lure and entice the Israelite men over to your side of the border, introduce them to some of your cultural pagan practices, that is what will weaken them. Do you get that? What weakens a person who is walking strong in the power of God? That pull to the other side, that compromise, that willingness to go and pursue power in another camp, to pursue pleasure in another camp. That's where their compromise came in. That's the heart, the root of the compromise that Jesus is talking to, to the people of Pergamum. And they are 
they are being pulled by the same forces. It's all around them. Just like the people of Israel were surrounded, they were on border, they were here. They kind of worked themselves into a bubble and all around them on at least three sides were Moabites and Midianites. So they were surrounded in a, cult, a pagan culture, by pagan culture that was culturally very pervasive. And they fell into temptation. And God had to send a plague. He spoke a word of judgment. Moses got the leaders and he said, people, what are you doing? Cut it out. You're bringing, you're bringing division among the people. You're, bring, you're opening us up to, to sickness, to disease, to sin, to judgment. A plague came, killed 24,000 people, brought in who knows what. People guess that maybe a sexual disease or something that happened from drinking the blood of a sickened animal or something from one of their cultures brought in. But anyway, somehow a plague was brought into the camp. People are dying everywhere. So some people start to listen. They come to the tent of meeting and they begin praying, oh God, please deliver us from this, from this plague. Set us free. Don't, don't hold us accountable for all the sins that we have committed. Please forgive us. And we'll turn. And right in the middle of this assembly, this guy has some serious kahunas. He is a leader of the tribe of Israel. He marches a Midianite woman right in front of the tent of meeting where people are praying for deliverance from this wrath, takes him into his tent within full view of the people, takes her into his tent within full view of the people and starts fornicating. Phineas, the grandson of the high priest Aaron in Israel, he has enough of it. He takes a sword, not a sword, a spear, marches into the tent, runs it through both of them. Sounds a little drastic. But God instantly said, what Phineas has done, I will accept as a sacrifice and I will waylay my wrath. Because Phineas had the heart God was looking for where we're not just going to stay in our sin and we know what we need to do. We know we need to haul our idols out and throw them into the fire. We know we need to call that person who we are having intimate relations with outside of God's will and say, this is not happening. This is not what God has for me. We need to cut off those areas of sin that God has already pointed out to us. We don't need time to stand in front of the tent of meeting and go, oh God, please forgive me, but I'm not really actually going to take any action to get these sins out of my life. We stand there begging, and God says, sometimes you just got to act, people. And he says, I accept Phineas. Phineas has the heart I'm looking for. Get in there. Deal with it. Be done. Move on. That is what Phineas allowed the people of Israel to do. But there was still devastation before that. And the people of Pergamum were dealing with the same kinds of enticements all around them, and they were allowing it. The other thing they were doing that we haven't touched a whole lot on um, because of, that was the Balak, Balaam thing, but they, uh, they were holding on to opposing theologies. Some of them were saying, okay, I want to do what Balaam says. Balaam taught you can have a myriad of gods. You can talk to the one true God, just like I did, but you can also hold on and communicate with and have all the power of all these gods. And people were holding on to that and to this. And the other thing is they hold, holding on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly what the teaching of the Nicolaitans were, but we know from Ephesus that God hates it. In Joey's message, it said, you, you got rid of the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. So if we have... If we're holding on to the word of God in one hand and we're trying to hold on to an an opposing theology or a different teaching, another God in another hand, we're compromised. There's no way we can walk strong. And God is saying, I need a strong church. So this is a message of power. Step up, people. Stop waffling. Stop jumping into sin willy-nilly just because it looks nice or enticing. Stop holding on to opposing theologies. Get it straight. Who are you going to serve? And stand firm on that. So we have moral compromise. We have ethical compromise. We have religious compromise. And these people are really um, not being faithful witnesses. 
they're not presenting a, a good picture to the world of what Christianity is supposed to look like. So he says, I'm going to, uh, so, so he says, uh, so we've got the ethical um, compromise, which is idolatry. We've got the moral, the sexual sin, which is an example of a moral compromise. And we've got the double-mindedness, which is an example of religious compromise. And so I, I was like, what's the difference between ethics and morality? Because we kind of use them interchangeably nowadays. But I just thought I'd take a, a second to define the terms, and I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. The um, ethics, historically speaking, the way it was intended when it comes from the Greek word ethos, uh, or the same root, um, ethics are an external set of standards which guide what we ought to do. Okay? Um, for instance, rules of conduct in the workplace or the home, principles of religion. So our external guide, we get our, we, our ethics, our rules, what we ought to do, should come from the Word of God. Okay? Then there's morals. And morals come from a word more, and it is an individual's own principles regarding what is right and wrong. So it's more like the what, what we actually are doing, not what we ought to do, but your morals are more like what, what you think really is right and wrong. And um, it's kind of, it's, there's, there's some gray areas, even in Christianity, about things. Like I was thinking about um, like war. Um, I come from a culture of people who um, are pacifists, conscientious objectors in times of war. They'll serve their country, but in um, non-combative capacities. And um, then there's other people um, will read the Bible and say, it is my God-given responsibility to serve in a civic way and in, in do battle. So um, there, that's where a moral thing would come, come in. You can have the same standard of ethics and interpret it slightly differently, but basically all the essentials will line up as far as we know we don't steal. We know we don't kill. We know we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't lie. Those kinds of things, um, everyone says, well, that's because humans are intrinsically good. No, it's because God still has been around long enough to have put a sense of conscience and right and wrong, that hint of the residue of his spirit in people that is causing us to sense right and wrong and, and do good a little bit. So, um, so morals are what we, what we are doing. Now, the problem when we interchange ethics and morality is that because ethics are supposed to be the normative. This is the standard. And then morals are what we do. For instance, okay, let's use lying as an example. If somebody, if somebody interviewed everybody and said, have you ever lied? Donna, have you ever lied? Yeah, okay, me too. Um, Megan, have you ever lied? Gary? Yeah, okay, so far we're 100%. Joey, have you ever lied? You have? Oh my word. Now we are really getting to the meat of it. Kathy Troyer. <laughs> he might be lying. <laughs> Kathy Troyer, have you ever lied? Oh my goodness. So based on this little poll, I could say everybody lies. So lying must be an ethic of the, the community. It can be the, the, the normative. It must be normal for people to lie. But then when we hold that, that action, that moral standard, against our ethical standard, the Bible tells us to let our word be our bond. It says, speak the truth. It says, do not bear false witness. So our ethics come into conflict with the morals of society sometimes. And that's why it's important to get it straight, to say, this is my standard. My morals, then, I behave right and wrong based on this. My morals do not change my ethics. My ethics always have to change my morals. And then the last thing is religion. Um, religious compromise that they went into. Religion is something that one believes in and follows devotedly with conviction. It is internally motivated, and that's where it, dif it differs from ethics. Ethics is an external standard, but our true, a pure religion, 
is internally motivated, based out of conviction in our hearts that cannot be changed. Because um, for us, the Holy Spirit has planted that in us and rooted it deeply. So for us, all three must align in order for us to present a complete picture of who Jesus is and what Christianity is supposed to be about. That's why it's important that all areas are covered. He addresses your ethics, your morals, and your religion. And he says, you re- I, okay, I really need you to pay attention to all three. I can't have compromise in any of these areas. Or we end up um, a people that misrepresent the word of truth, the word of God. All right, so we, and we open ourselves up to compromise. Instead of being set apart, we start to look just like everyone else, and then what's the point of being a Christian? Why would I join a, a party of everybody if I want to do something new and exciting and, and um, unique and fresh with, with my Jesus? I would just, you know, do what everyone else is doing. And we've done that for years, and it's not satisfying. So why? Why do we still uh, compromise? Oh, yeah, we hurt ourselves. Instead of being set apart, we look just like everyone else and hurt ourselves, our brothers and our sisters in our church and our witness before others. So on one side, we have the faithful witnesses. On the other side, we have the compromisers. And the compromisers make us all look bad, really. When we compromise, it's not just about us. I mean, we do worry about us, that's why I'm focusing on that, but... It's really about Jesus. How are we representing him to the world? Are we being a faithful, you know, accurate, heart-committed witness? Or are we we just trying the hardest to uh, get into heaven while looking and doing what everyone else is doing around us? So um, a couple possibilities why we compromise. Um, Loneliness. Um, maybe our, our commitment was shallow to begin with. We desire pleasure. We have a desire for power. Um, we desire to be like God, um, like Adam and Eve. That was the trick. Like, oh, don't you know you could be like God if you eat this? Um, lack confidence in his sufficiency. Uh, that's a big one when we're talking about the word of God. We might agree that it is inerrant. It's a pure, it's a good, it's, it's uh, protected holy word of God, but do we believe it's sufficient? That's a hard question. Because if we believe it's inerrant, then whatever it says is true, and if it says it's all we need, it means it. Sufficiency. Um, Maybe we're embarrassed by standing out. We just want to feel normal for a minute. Maybe we feel entitled, like we've already gone through a lot for Christ. I've tried the Christ thing. I've already gone through a lot. I deserve a break just to relax my mind a minute deserve a little reward. Maybe we're just unaware. Maybe nobody's told us this. Well, now you're aware. Poor friend choices. Maybe we've been influenced by people who still have their hands in both, in both cookie jars. Um, or by people that hold me back, man, pull me back, man, who isn't, support, who isn't supporting you, who we need that in order to have the support we need to walk with Jesus. Maybe we think we're smarter than God. Maybe we think more knowledge is better, more options. Um, we, we think the more that we know about all, everybody else's gods and the more we taste of, of that and experience that, then the more we'll be able to relate to them. God says, I'll teach you what you need to know. Be set apart. Jesus didn't fall into idolatry. Jesus didn't go worship Satan or sit in an orgy or a seance so that he could figure out how to oppose the enemy. He was 100% God all the time, and he still knew how to do battle. So whatever the reason is that, um, that we compromise, maybe your reason is on the list or not, um, God says repent. And so we know what that means, right? Yeah? Michael Jackson out of there. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah. He's, God says, wherever you find yourself, repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Them fighting words. He actually says it. The one who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Numbers 25, we remember that Phineas killed the man and the woman, and it turned away God's wrath. We have got to take some serious action against our sin. If God is pointing out something to you today that you're like, I've been in the compromising camp in this area, 
time to repent. He who has ears, let him hear. And it's not me saying it. It's what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Right now, if you're being convicted of something, it's because the Holy Spirit is in you. It's not because I'm an interesting speaker because right now I feel like oh, maybe something some is getting lost through our external ears. But let the Spirit speak to your hearts. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. Oh, the hidden manna. The manna is a representation of the sustenance, the nourishment, the life in the bread that they got in the desert. It kept them alive because they had to eat. The word of God, the treasures hidden in here our sustenance. They will nourish us. They will keep us alive. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why we stay in the word, why we read it, live it, breathe it, enjoy it. White stone. There's lots of different thoughts on what a white stone could be, but we know it's something good. Um, most likely in this culture, it would have... Um, made sense to the people because people would, uh, gladiators would get it as a symbol of your freedom. After you've earned your way out of the arena with so many kills, you would be given a white stone and that you could carry it with you. Some people would carry it in a little leather pouch. Some people would put it in their pocket, put it on a neck like an amulet, identify themselves as a free man. And that's a beautiful picture. If God gives you a white stone, he's saying, I'm not trying to make your life boring or take away your pleasures. I'm trying to give you freedom. Please take my freedom. He wants to give you that white stone and it'll have a new name on it. Maybe you were called compromiser before, but now you are a faithful witness and it'll be a name that is specific to you, not just generally a faithful witness. That's maybe what Antipas was called, but maybe you'll be... Uh, I don't know, princess prayer warrior. Who knows what you'll be? Maybe you'll be um, cuddly conqueror. Maybe, maybe you'll, <laughs> no. I don't know. Maybe you'll be shines like the stars. Maybe you'll be um, beauty beyond emerald. I don't know. Whatever your name is, it'll be something that God sees, a characteristic of your heart, of your um, unique personality and way of connecting with him that he wants to call out in you and say, step up. I want to give you freedom to be that new person. Can we not stand in the way of God today? Can we accept? Receiving is one of the hardest things, I think, for a Christian because everything else in life is earn it do something to get it? Can we stop striving and just say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to reach out? So the question today is, well, I, I think I already talked about the new name. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, the old has gone, the new has come. Are we willing to walk in that freedom, that newness? Are we willing to leave behind our compromising ways? If you are one of the people today who, let's ask ourselves this question. If God is talking to our hearts, just ask him, God, am I a faithful witness or am I a compromiser? Which camp am I in? And it can be in just certain areas. But God, renew my witness. Give me freedom from this thing that I've been holding on to, this thing that I took a bite of and ate and took into myself that was not of you. this willful action that I continually do just because I feel like I'm going to get fulfilled in, in some deeper way than what you can do. God, teach me to trust.
feel like loneliness is a, a big one for someone in here today. That maybe you're not um, compromising yet, but it's crossed your mind to possibly go look for um, a connection with a human person, even though you're not willing to put the time in to connecting with the Lord. Start there. Start with the Lord and let him fill that void of loneliness. There is someone who um, you're not doing idolatry in the sense that um, the pagan worshipers did it with the blood and the sacrifice, but you have made sacrifices in uh, holiness in areas, uh, the wrong areas. You've sacrificed the wrong things in order to pursue an idol. Be careful what you have to give up in order to get something else. Fear. Fear that it won't be enough. Fear that if you do let go, whatever takes its place will not be enough. Jesus, I speak with your word against fear. Fear not, for I am with you. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. God's word is for us today. When God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach against the people, repent or you will be destroyed. The people heard. They turned away from their wickedness and they turned their heart toward God. And he relented. There is no fear of judgment for him who is walking in the will of the Lord. Father, I pray that we don't, we don't tempt you that we don't wishy-washy and say, well, I just want to see how bad it'll actually get if I continue on because now I know I need to turn. God, let's not play games with you. And a word to the faithful. Good job. Thank you. Thank you for holding fast to me. Thank you for not renouncing my name. Thank you for standing strong. Thank you for feeling uncomfortable. Thank you for being embarrassed every now and then. Thank you for giving up a party here and there. You make me look good. 
God, I have a sense that as you look at this church and you divine, divinely read the thoughts of our minds and our hearts, that overall you are, you are pleased. <laughs> you know that the, the majority of the people sitting in here today really want to walk strong stick with you, to be without compromise. Hold us close, dear Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name. Anything? Good. All right. Go in peace. Go in power. You're the good guys. <laughs> Superheroes. Go get them. Love you.